0: Chapter 3. The Creation of Wealth Section 1. The Division of Labour and Free Trade Division of Labour is a fact of life, a result of the way that God has created the world. The principle of the division of labour is thoroughly biblical. It is a creation fact, a manifestation of the symbiotic nature of the whole creation. Mankind was created male and female, the division of labour is fundamental to the nature of human life. Man cannot escape the necessity of the division of labour if he is to fulfil his calling as God's image-bearer and vicegerent on earth. Adam required, quote, and help meet for him, unquote, in his creation mandate. The human race was not complete without the creation of woman. Genesis 2, verses 18 to 24 Division of labour is present in, and basic to, the whole creation. We shall be dealing with one aspect of it, however, namely the division of labour in the field of economics and the creation of wealth. The creation of wealth through economic rationalisation is only possible on the basis of the division of labour. If everyone were to provide for his own needs by himself without utilising the work and skills of others in mutual cooperation, Civilization could not advance very far. Everyone would spend his time feeding and clothing himself, and perhaps his family, though, of course, the very existence of the family constitutes a basic and vital division of labour, and such provisions could exist only on the most basic level, subsistence living. If someone were particularly good at something, some form of manufacturing process such as building houses for instance, he would not have sufficient time to develop his skills because of the need to secure other provisions in areas where he has less skill. Providing for his basic existence would absorb most of his time. Without someone to provide for his food and clothing and generally take care of his other needs, he would not have the time and energy to develop his particular architectural skill. But if A is good at building houses and B is good at farming, their skills can be harmonised to achieve greater efficiency and therefore greater productivity in both industries. The former, A, spends more time building houses and, as a result of concentrating his time and efforts on this form of industry, increases the productivity of his skill, rather spending time on other things, which he does not do as well and which other people can do more skillfully. The latter, B, likewise increases his productivity by concentrating his skills on the farming industry even if a is better at building houses and farming than b it is still advantageous for a to specialize in that industry in which he has the greatest specialization and productivity let us say construction leaving b to concentrate on what a does less well farming since under these conditions total productivity will be maximized division of labor leads to more productivity and a higher standard of living, since more skilled labour can be given to each specialist occupation. The result is the creation of wealth. The most efficient means of creating wealth, that which facilitates the greatest and most productive division and specialisation of labour, is free trade, that is, the rational, capitalistic organisation of free labour, to use Marx Weber's words. Slavery, for example, is an inherently less rational form of economic enterprise than trade based on free labour. Free trade harmonises and promotes the interests of all. It is important to grasp this fact. Free trade is about promoting and advancing our own interests by promoting and advancing the interests of others with whom we trade for goods and services. Division of Labour and Free Trade Work to harmonise the interests of everyone. Section 2 Moral and Legal Predictability in the Market Order The creation of wealth, therefore, depends on the division of labour and men's willingness to trade to their mutual advantage. When such trade takes place between a small number of people, barter trading may suffice, but as society becomes increasingly complex, a common medium of exchange and various other institutions are needed in order to facilitate the development of an efficient and stable economy. Greater economic rationalisation leads to economic growth and rising standards of living. Economic institutions become more complex and economic actors and procedures become more interdependent. In turn, the rising standard of living helps to stimulate the development of civilization generally. The development of such a free market society, however, requires a high degree of moral and legal predictability. It is only worth trading with others if the parties involved can trust each other, not fearing that they will be swindled. At least, there must be a degree of confidence that, if they are swindled, there is sufficient legal backup to make sure that the offender is caught and made to pay restitution. The correct functioning of all human relations requires a moral and legal foundation. Without this moral and legal foundation, economic activity based on the division of labour in a free society becomes useless. Robbery and cheating are then the only means of economic amelioration. As we shall see, it is significant that this kind of society has only developed to an advanced stage within a specifically Christian cultural setting. What I have been describing so far is capitalism, that is, private individuals using their skill and resources in order to exchange the fruit of their labour with others to their mutual advantage. This kind of trade is based on the desire for profit, quite obviously, but it is not based on the desire for profit at any expense or by any means. Capitalism, that is to say, assumes that business will be done honestly and that each party will be trustworthy in their dealings with each other. In other words, it assumes moral and legal predictability. It assumes that honest contracts can be made between free individuals, and that infringements of such contracts can be dealt with by the legal authorities. Capitalism, therefore, is private ownership of the means of production and distribution in a free society where economic activity takes place on the basis of a moral code, enforceable by the magistrate or civil government. Section 3 Economic Rationalization This means that the raw desire for profit at all costs, and by any means, is not what characterizes capitalism. What characterizes capitalism is economic rationalization, that is, the subordination of the profit motive to a particular means of acquisition based on the mutual advancement of all parties involved, and the growth of that means of social amelioration through the virtues of honesty, thrift, and hard work. This is precisely what Max Weber argued in his famous essay The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. The raw desire for profit has existed in all societies and in all ages, and Weber used the term, quote, capitalistic adventurer, unquote, to those who sought profits by means of economic activities that were, quote, predominantly of an Irrational and speculative character. End quote. The activities of these capitalistic adventurers were often quote, directed to acquisition by force, above all the acquisition of booty, whether directly in war or in the form of continuous fiscal booty by exploitation of subjects. End quote. But such practices do not constitute the distinctive form of capitalism that has characterized modern Western economic activity. And it is this Western form of economic activity that is usually denoted by the term capitalism. The kinds of acquisition described by Weber under the term quote capitalistic adventurer can be and were achieved by means of piracy and military domination, not economic rationalization. Indeed, this kind of capitalism can be observed in the policies of even modern Marxist and socialist states. For example, Germany under Hitler, the USSR and a host of other Soviet satellites and Third World regimes which repudiated Western capitalism as described by Weber. However, capitalism, as I am using the term, that is, Western capitalism from the mid-17th century to the mid-20th century, less consistently since the end of the Second World War, has been the product of a desire for profit subjected to a particular means of acquisition – based on a distinctive ethic. According to Weber, this distinctive means was the rational capitalistic organisation of, formally, free labour. In other words, economic activity based on the division of labour in a free society that guarantees a higher degree of moral and legal predictability. Only in the West has this been present in any significant degree. Only suggestions of it are found elsewhere, end quote, says Weber, and the ethic on which this kind of capitalism was based was the Protestant, that is, biblical, ethic of honesty, thrift, and hard work. But this distinctive ethic and means of economic betterment was set in the context of the Protestant understanding of the calling. According to Weber, quote, that side of English Puritanism which was derived from Calvinism gives the most consistent religious basis. The idea of the calling. Accordingly, the Protestant concept of the calling will be examined and analysed here in reference to the thought and teaching of English Puritanism. The essence of the Puritan concept of the calling was the belief that man has a duty to serve and glorify God in whatever walk of life and whatever situation he is placed, since, according to the Protestant doctrine of predestination, Nothing happens by chance or mistake, and God is the ultimate author of all the circumstances in which man finds himself. The Puritan saw God's hand in all situations, and sought to glorify God in all situations, and this meant in the workplace and in business and commerce, just as much as in church and in private devotional life. According to Weber, for the Puritan, quote, the only way of living acceptably to God was not to surpass worldly morality and monastic asceticism, but solely through the fulfilment of the obligations imposed upon the individual by his position in the world. That was his calling, quote. In other words, man is called to labour diligently to the best of his ability in all circumstances for the glory of God. The effect of this conception of the calling on society was the rationalisation of economic life in accordance with the ethical principles of revealed religion, biblical Christianity. This Puritan concept of the calling was a fundamental element historically in the rise of modern capitalism as defined above. The distinctive feature of Western capitalism is, therefore, economic rationalisation, that is, the subjection of the desire for profit to rational economic principles based on honesty, thrift and hard work, in a social order based on moral and legal predictability safeguarded by the magistrate. The development of this kind of capitalism took place significantly, though not perfectly, only in one period of history, viz. the post-Reformation period of Western Europe, particularly Northern Europe, that is, Protestant Europe, and the United States of America, which consisted of former European colonies, sharing a common Protestant heritage. This period lasted roughly up until the outbreak of World War II, All forms of capitalism in other parts of the world today that share this distinctive form of economic rationalisation are based on the developments that took place in Protestant Europe and North America during this period. That is, they are imitations of Western economies. An essential ingredient for the development of this kind of capitalism, though not the only one, was, as Weber has shown, the Puritan understanding of the calling and the, quote, Worldly asceticism that accompanied it. Weber argued that the Puritan morality, or, quote, Worldly asceticism, as he termed it, and the Puritan view of one's calling in life, were important elements, historically, in the development and expansion of Western capitalism. The Puritan concept of the calling was essential to the worldview that produced the kind of morality that made the development of modern Western capitalism possible. Section 4 Puritanism and Capitalism. This thesis of Weber's has not gone unchallenged. Indeed, debunking Weber has become rather popular among some left-wing sociologists and economists. This being the case, it will be instructive to look a little closer into the connection and illustrate the Weber thesis from an actual Puritan document that typified, probably more than any other Puritan thought and practice, the Westminster Confession of Faith and catechisms. Capitalism, as it has been defined above, can be seen quite clearly in Puritan thought, not as systematically developed and stated as I am presenting it here, but it is there nonetheless. For the Puritans, again citing Weber, quote, the campaign against the temptations of the flesh and the dependence on external things was not a struggle against the rational acquisition, but against the irrational use of wealth. End quote. As we shall see, it is precisely the irrational use, that is consumption, of wealth, rather than the rational acquisition of wealth that characterises socialism. Consequently, in the long term, socialism leads to the decapitalization of society and to reduced standards of living. This is in stark contrast to capitalism, which leads to capitalization generally and to economic growth and social amelioration for the whole of society. Weber goes on to say On the side of the production of private wealth asceticism condemned both dishonesty and impulsive avarice what was condemned as covetousness mammonism, etc. was the pursuit of riches for their own sake for wealth in itself was a temptation but here asceticism was the power which ever seeks the good but ever creates the evil what was evil in its sense was possession and its temptations. For, in conformity with the Old Testament and in analogy to the ethical valuation of good works, asceticism looked upon the pursuit of wealth as an end in itself as highly reprehensible, but the attainment of it as a fruit of labour in a calling was a sign of God's blessing. And even more important, the religious valuation of restless, continuous, systematic work in a worldly calling As the highest means to asceticism, and at the same time the surest and most evident proof of rebirth and genuine faith, must have been the most powerful conceivable lever for the expansion of that attitude toward life which we have here called the spirit of capitalism. The picture Weber paints of the Puritan is a very austere one, and doubtless there was an austerity to the Puritan ethic. However, Many have considerably overemphasised this austerity, at least as a general characteristic of Puritanism. The result has been a caricature of Puritanism that does not do justice to all the facts. Nevertheless, Weber's thesis is essentially correct, and is now often referred to, and as often misunderstood and misconstrued, as the, quote, Protestant work ethic, end quote. This work ethic was a vital ingredient for the success of modern Western-style economies. The positive attitude of the Puritans towards the acquisition of wealth by lawful means can be seen quite clearly in the Puritan teaching on the Eighth Commandment. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, The Eighth Commandment requireth the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. Question 74. Answer. The larger catechism expands on this and, in what it says, we can see many of the elements of economic life that have been mentioned above. Question 141. What are the duties required in the Eighth Commandment? Answer. The duties required in the Eighth Commandment are truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between man and man, rendering to everyone his due, restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof, giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others, moderation of our judgment, wills and affections concerning worldly goods, a provident care and study to get, keep, use and dispose these things which are necessary and convenient for the sustenation, support of our nature and suitable to our condition, a lawful calling and diligent in it, frugality, Avoiding unnecessary lawsuits and suretyship for other like engagements, and an endeavour by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others, as well as our own. The Catechism is essentially capitalistic in its understanding of the economic function of man's life. It promotes private ownership of property, including the means of production and economic rationalisation based on the Christian virtues of honesty, thrift and hard work in a morally upright social order protected by the magistrate. Here the getting and keeping of wealth is encouraged as long as it is rationalised according to the moral teaching of the Christian faith. This means that wealth is not simply to be acquired for its own sake or purely out of a desire to consume it in the satisfaction of one's own desires and lusts that is rather a feature of socialism, as we shall see. To seek wealth for its own sake, or merely for oneself, is wrong because the whole of life, including one's economic life, should be lived for the glory of God. To seek wealth for its own sake, or merely for oneself, is wrong because the whole of life, including one's economic life, should be lived for the glory of God. What the Catechism advocates is the lawful use is the use of lawful means of economic acquisition and good economic management to further one's own interests and the interests of others in a life of service to God in a particular calling. In such an order, we can help each other to preserve and better our own economic conditions and that of our neighbour. And this is precisely what the capitalist mode of production is all about, namely, promoting our own interests by promoting the interests of others. For the Puritans, There was nothing inconsistent with the getting and keeping of wealth and serving God according to his will. Acquiring wealth lawfully is a means of serving God according to his will. Man can give thanks to God for his wealth and enjoy it, knowing that it comes to him as God's blessing. It is the fruit of a life dedicated to God's glory and service in a particular calling, which is of benefit not only to oneself but also to one's neighbour with whom one trades. This is the biblical position, and we are told quite clearly in the Bible that the Lord delights in the prosperity of his people. Psalm 35, verse 27 Weber saw the Puritan element in the capitalist mentality. He saw the Puritan asceticism, the willingness to be thrifty and hardworking, to forego present consumption in order to provide for the future and leave an inheritance, to subject the use of one's wealth to rational economic principles, created a surplus of capital, which could then be put to productive use and thereby facilitate the general economic amelioration of society. The Puritan did not proficably spend whenever he earned, but ploughed as much as he could back into his business. As a result, capital was created and put to productive use that would not otherwise have been available. This process is the very essence of capitalistic activity, and it led to greater productivity and the creation of wealth and prosperity. It advanced the possibilities and specialisation of labour, and brought about a sustained period of economic growth. But this would not have happened without the kind of mentality that characterised the Puritan outlook. The Puritan outlook was future-oriented. It took seriously the biblical injunction to leave an inheritance to one's grandchildren, Proverbs 13 verse 22. It was this Puritan work ethic, combined with the process of economic rationalisation, that led to the capital accumulation and immense economic productivity and creation of wealth in the period of the Industrial Revolution in England. The effect of this Puritan mentality on the English economy can be seen quite clearly in the turbulent history of the 17th century. Up until the mid-17th century in England, most industries were controlled by guilds, which restricted output and regulated quality. Under the Stuarts, before the Civil Wars, there was also a wide variety of monopolies, granted by the Crown, which controlled the supply of materials. With the exception of the most basic necessities of life, almost every area of industry operated under government licence at some time or other during this period. Those who belonged to guilds or had access to a monopoly trade were able to benefit from a restricted and protected means of livelihood which was essentially irrational from an economic point of view, and therefore less efficient. This situation restricted the development of free trade and slowed down economic amelioration considerably. so Insofar as Stuart governments had anything which could be described as an economic policy, it was to support the monopoly London export companies against interlopers, to slow down industrial development and control it through the guilds and monopolies, to suppress middlemen. End quote. Thus, quote, during the general slump of the early twenties, England was left saddled with a rigid, oligopolistic, high cost economy ill fitted to cope with a competitor, the Dutch, who throve on low costs, adaptability, and up to dateness. With the rise to power of the Puritans, all this changed. The industrial monopolies were abolished by the Long Parliament, and, under Cromwell, the power of the guilds was largely broken. Freedom of trade and entrance into former guild occupations increased considerably. Christopher Hull described the economic achievements of the Commonwealth period in the following terms, Employers and entrepreneurs were freed from government regulation and control in various ways. Attempts to supervise quality of manufacture and to fix prices were abandoned. Industrial monopolies were abolished greater freedom was established in relations between employers and workmen. The government stopped trying to regulate wage rates to compel employers to, to keep their employees at work in time of slump. Taxation became regular, if heavy, and, except under army rule, it was controlled by representatives of the taxpayers. Henceforth, employers were limited in expanding or contracting their business solely by economic considerations. Quote, The relation between masters and servants quote, wrote Clarendon nostalgically what was quote, dissolved by the Parliament that their army might be increased by the apprentices against their masters' consent The Act of 1563 insisting on a seven-year period of apprenticeship was not enforced The Commons law so favourable to absolute property rights triumphed over the prerogative courts These measures were part of an extensive rationalisation of economic life that greatly facilitated productivity and led to the creation of wealth rather than the control of wealth, which was what essentially characterised Stuart economic policy. Cromwell also successfully crushed the socialistic movements that began to appear at this time. The Diggers, which was a proto-communistic movement, and the Levellers, which was not really a communistic group, so much as a moderate democratic group. The Commonwealth represented, in a very real sense, therefore, the beginning of both the Industrial Revolution, which is usually dated from about the middle of the 18th century, when technical improvements in industry began to appear much more rapidly, and the British Empire, which would not have been possible without the wealth generated by the Industrial Revolution. Section 5 Investment. Capitalization. capitalisation. Let us now pursue the mechanics of the capitalist mode of production a little further. Suppose someone were living at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and practising a traditional craft or trade as a means of livelihood, making cloth for instance. After his needs are taken care of, he has some excess income left over. Over a period of years, he is able to save this excess income, perhaps even lend it out at interest, until he has accumulated a substantial sum of money. He can now consume this wealth directly by purchasing a very expensive luxury item that he has always admired and desired and that is handmade, and therefore produced in very small quantities. Alternatively, he can forego the use of this luxury item and use the money to buy a power loom, which is able to produce more cloth at a cheaper price than his old hand loom. He then sells the cloth he has made and makes a little more profit He plows this profit back into his business, that is, uses it to purchase more capital equipment, and each month his output increases, and, of course, his profits increase also. As a result of the use of the power loom, productivity increases, and, as more cloth becomes available on the market, prices fall. The cost of clothing then falls. The product becomes available to more people at a price they can more easily afford, which further stimulates productivity and increases profits. This process then has knock-on effects in other industries also, since the increase in discretionary income for the general public, generated by greater productivity and cheaper prices in one industry, will be spent on a wide variety of goods and services, thereby increasing demand in other industry, creating new jobs also. The increased profits generated by this process can then be invested in capital and technical development, leading to innovation and greater productivity, mass production and lower prices generally. By using his wealth productively, that is, by investing it in capital rather than consuming it immediately, our clothmaker has created wealth not only for himself, but also for those with whom he trades by helping to provide a greater supply of goods at a cheaper price. As this process is undertaken throughout other industries, other goods, including those that were formerly luxury items, perhaps the one that the cloth maker had previously foregone the consumption of in order to buy the power loom, comes within the reach of the majority of the population and standards of living increase generally. Everyone benefits from this mode of production, therefore. This process of investment and capitalisation, leading to greater productivity, lower prices, and the general rise of standards of living fulfills the Westminster Catechism's understanding of economic life, which requires, quote, the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others, end quote. Capitalism leads to the creation of wealth and the general economic amelioration of everyone in society. This process is the essence of the capitalist mode of production, This is necessarily a rather simple explanation of the process, and it must take place on a large scale to have any significant effect on the economy, but it is essentially what happened in the Industrial Revolution. It could not have happened, however, without the change in attitudes and practices brought about by the Puritans in the 17th century, and without the private ownership of the means of production in a market economy based on moral and legal predictability. It required honesty, thrift, hard work, moral and legal predictability, and a future-oriented view of life. In short, it required a Christian, biblical worldview. Section 6. Socialism and the Decapitalization of Society We have seen that thrift and economic rationalisation led to the greater accumulation of productive use of capital in Northern Europe after the Reformation. But we now live in an age that is characterised more by the consumption of wealth than by capital accumulation. The age of capitalism has been replaced by the age of consumerism. Of course, the availability of a much greater and varied supply of goods to satisfy consumer demands is testimony to the success of capitalism, as a form of economic organisation of society. This in itself is a good thing. But this is not the only feature of modern Western economies. The problem is what we might call the characteristic spirit of the modern age. In the sphere of economics, this characteristic spirit, which is political in nature, has supplanted the ideals upon which Western capitalism was based. Our society today is slowly but surely moving towards a form of political organisation in which the economy is dominated and controlled by political rather than rational economic criteria. This political system, if it is allowed to function unfettered according to its characteristic spirit, that is, centralised political control of human activity, what used to be called slavery, will lead, ultimately, to the consumption of the vast capital base that has been built up in previous centuries. Why? Just as capital accumulation and economic rationalisation and the productive use of wealth are distinctive features of Western capitalism, the irrational use of wealth and the wasteful consumption of capital are distinctive features of socialism and the 20th century was the century of socialism. It is the rise of this socialist worldview and government management of the economy according to socialist principles, that has, over the past 50 years or so, led to the present state of economic irrationality in the British economy. Although the Thatcher government of the 1980s was considerably less socialist than the left-wing and centre parties in Britain, it needs to be recognised that it was still, essentially, a socialist government. Of course, it must be acknowledged that the implementation of the Thatcher government's policies did lead to some significant reforms and, to some extent, helped to move economic thinking away from socialist ideals. And, doubtless, any government must go slowly in seeking to reform the economy. But the true nature of conservatism is not capitalistic necessarily, even if the Thatcher government did try, in some measure, to move towards capitalism. The effect of the 12 years of the Thatcher government was that the nation moved towards the grand socialist debacle more slowly than it would have done under the policies of either the Liberal Democrat or Labour parties. But moved towards that debacle, it surely did, and with a relentless illogicality that confuses and dismays, as can be seen from the current state of the nation's involvement with the grandest and most wasteful policy of economic irrationality, in the history of the modern world next to communism – the European Union. Unless this trend is reversed, the kind of steady economic growth and social amelioration that we have come to expect and take for granted in the West will become a thing of the past. We must now consider the irrationalities of socialist economics. The rest of this chapter will deal with the problems of economic calculation and capital consumption – under socialist management of the economy, and the characteristic spirit of socialism as compared with capitalism. The following chapter will deal with the central banking system, which is at the heart of the socialist economic machine. A. Economic Calculation Under Socialism Under socialism, with its reliance on government-controlled and government-financed industries, subsidies, production quotas, import tariffs, wage and price controls, tax penalties and handouts to favoured groups, regulation of economic activity generally, and, with all these factors, a good deal of legal unpredictability, it becomes impossible to calculate rationally to the degree necessary to maintain the use of capital at its maximum productivity. Since socialism, by means of these policies, ruins the price mechanism, or at least significantly hinders its proper functioning, time, Money and scarce resources get sidetracked into unproductive or less productive uses. The waste resulting from this situation is over and above the amount of taxpayers' money that is squandered by left-wing governments and councils. The result is, at best, a fall in the rate of economic growth or stagnation, and, in extreme socialist countries, even a reverse, a decline in productivity and standards of living, that is, decapitalization. Socialism has reversed the trend towards economic rationalization that Weber described in his essay. The motivation behind this mentality is twofold. First, there is the desire to cushion people from the realities of life in the real world. Life in the world as God has created it and providentially governs it. It is an attempt to enable people to run away from their responsibilities into the arms of the benevolent state. Socialists want an easy ride on easy terms, social security and living provided on a plate by the paternalistic state. Second, socialists are often motivated ideologically by envy of others. They see others who are more wealthy, who have a better standard of living, and they cannot bear it. They are gripped with envy. They therefore support those who promote policies aimed at appeasing their envy, at taking from the rich to give to the quote-unquote poor, so-called. They want what they do not have. They therefore insist that the state take steps to provide them with it, and with the general standard of living they desire, or at least, feeling this, make sure that no one else is allowed to have such a standard of living. The capital base of the nation which took centuries to build up, has been plundered in order to pay for this envy-driven redistribution of wealth within society. This has been accomplished through legalised theft on a grand scale by the state. Income tax, sales tax, VAT, tariffs, control and expropriation of private property, inheritance tax, capital gains tax, company tax, graduated income tax, and fraud on a scale by means of government-generated inflation, controlled through the central banking system. All this has been done in the name of, quote, social justice, end quote. In reality, however, this amounts to little more than the politics of envy. B. Capital consumption The onslaught of socialism in this way, however, has also changed the way that those who have capital use it. Socialism has made the capitalist mode of living increasingly difficult. It confiscates and taxes away all it can of the profits that private individuals and companies make. By doing this, it takes away the motivation to use one's wealth productively. Socialism flies flat in the face of the biblical principle that the legitimate fruit of one's own labour is to be enjoyed and used with thankfulness. It denies the biblical dictum that, quote, the hand, The diligent maketh rich. Proverbs 10, verse 4. Compare Psalm 35, verse 27. According to socialist theory, individual property is a result of oppression and expropriation. Socialism, therefore, works to confiscate wealth from those who have it and to redistribute it. The effect of this is to create an immense disincentive to accumulate capital in other words, to save, or to pass on an inheritance to one's children. Rather than saving and freeing capital for productive use, people consume their wealth while they have it. Socialism creates a disinclination to save and promotes a mentality of immediate consumption. Since individual thrift and hard work are heavily penalised, people stop being thrifty and hard-working. This was a well-known fact of life in Soviet Russia and the communist states. Under socialism, all that saving does is to satisfy someone else's immediate wants, so people satisfy their own wants. And who can blame them? When this kind of mentality is imbibed by a community, the result is the decapitalization of society. This consumption mentality, the short-sighted, materialistic desire to consume one's wealth, now, rather than to put it to productive use, is all part and parcel of the socialist system. Materialism, in the sense that the term is used today, that is, ever-increasing greed for more consumption goods that one cannot afford unless one squanders one's resources wastefully, is a feature of socialism, not capitalism. Socialism leads to irrational economic policies aimed at appeasing a population that is swallowed a social ethics based on envy. As a consequence, it retards capitalization and eventually leads to decline, economic stagnation and even decapitalization. The ultimate result of socialism, therefore, is not the redistribution of wealth, but the redistribution of poverty. Section 7 The Spirit of Capitalism and the Spirit of Socialism the, quote, spirit of capitalism, quote, so clearly analysed by Marx favour, and the spirit of socialism are diametrically opposed to each other and involve, indeed require, not only radically different forms of economic organisation, but also incompatible political systems, the history of the Western economies from the Reformation to the mid-20th century, and the history of Soviet Russia, and any number of other Soviet satellites and third world communistic regimes bears out this lesson with such clarity that only the blind ideologue who refuses to accept the facts of history can fail to recognise it. The former leads to economic rationalisation and social amelioration across the whole of society. The latter leads to decapitalisation on a national scale and the consequent pauperization of all but the few who are able to seize the reins of despotic political power. However, the diverse economic... Political and social trends and ideologies observed in the history of Western and communist societies have a deeper religious cause than most historians, economists and political commentators are prone to admit today. Few, especially among economists, have followed the lead given by Marx, Weber in this respect. The kind of economic order that we have been used to and that has flourished in the nations of the West for the past three and a half centuries is intimately bound up with the predominance of the Christian, and particularly the Protestant, worldview in these nations. It was a Christian cultural matrix that gave birth to the modern world, with its scientific and economic achievements, its high view of progress, and the insistence on the necessity and value of man's bettering his conditions in life. With the waning of Christian influence in the Western nations, there will be not only a decline in the value placed upon human life, but also a demise of the whole value system and culture that was a necessary precondition for the economic transformation of Northern Europe after the Reformation. Perhaps technological progress will continue, although even this is by no means certain, but to what ends it will be directed and who will benefit from it will be determined by the kind of moral or amoral values that inform the culture in which such technological improvements occur in a culture that has a pagan view of life and a pagan view of justice and mercy, it is doubtful whether the term progress will have the same content that it has had for a predominantly Christian culture. Indeed, it is doubtful whether the term could be correctly used in a non-Christian culture, since the very concept of progress as it is used today is intimately bound up with the Christian understanding of life and history. An indication of the use and value of technological progress in such a society can be ascertained by assessing the results of the purely technological progress, divorced from a Christian moral foundation, that have accrued to those former Soviet Union nations that have availed themselves of the benefits of the technological developments achieved in the West. On the whole, the effects of technological progress in these countries, rather than filtering through to the average man and thereby Raising his standard and quality of life, as they did in the Christian West, were used merely to help strengthen a totalitarian regime that oppressed its people and denied to them virtually all the benefits that technological progress had brought to the peoples of the West. The few whose quality of life did change for the better were those who played the system, joined the party, and climbed their way up by means of political influence. Their better standard of living was not the result of progress in the Western sense, therefore. Rather, it was the result of exploitation of political power and privilege. Such exploitation has existed in all societies, even in those that, for most people, were the poorest and the least amenable to progress in the Western sense. This latter form of exploitative economic and social amelioration is of a piece with the kind of enterprise undertaken by Weber's quote, capitalistic adventurer, unquote and is in sharp contrast to the, quote, rational capitalistic organisation of, formerly, free labour, end quote, that has characterised Western economies. It is ironic that capitalistic Western economies should be considered exploitative by so many when the greatest and most severe forms of economic and political exploitation have arisen in those societies that have self-consciously and deliberately rejected the capitalistic, that is, Christian, form of economic organisation of society. Yet, it is faulty logic for the newly de ex-Soviet nations to think that a mere freeing up of markets will produce the kind of economic transformation that is presently desired and anticipated as the fruit of such reforms by the leadership of those nations. Such transformations do not occur in a religious and moral vacuum, much less in an environment whose social and political ethos is strongly antagonistic towards the religious attitudes necessary for such a transformation, as is that of modern Russia. The kind of economic progress desired by the Russian people today, that is, a Western lifestyle, was only achieved in the West because the Reformation transformed society's worldview in the 16th and 17th centuries. And this is because there must needs be, along with the mere technology of progress, an acceptance of the morality of work, honesty, thrift, a commitment to building for future generations, and thus a view of the meaning of life that goes beyond the individual's own self-interest and finds its purpose in the creative act of God and, particularly relevant in a society heavily influenced by socialist ideology, a denial and rejection of the sin of envy if society is to achieve the economic growth and prosperity on a scale that the West has experienced it. Such were the virtues that, for example, in England, where the Christian understanding of the meaning of life and work was able to flourish, made Western economic prosperity possible. The economic factors were necessary also, of course, but without these fundamental religious and moral foundations, it is doubtful that the outcome would have been the same. As Weber pointed out in his essay, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, The basic element of the capitalist mode of production were already in existence before the Reformation. But not until after the Reformation, when the Protestant ethic and doctrine of calling had transformed the everyday lives of ordinary people, did the spirit of capitalism begin to transform the economic landscape of Northern Europe. The dramatic growth of the Western economies in the two centuries following the Reformation was totally without historical precedent, It has been estimated that total economic output during this period doubled. In the 18th century, this rate of growth increased considerably, with the more advanced economies such as Britain growing by a full percentage point each year. By comparison, between AD 500 and 1500, the economies of Western Europe grew on average only by one-tenth of a percentage point per year. The rates of growth experienced by Western economies in the 20th century have been exponential. Paul Orrod states that, quote, The Western economies grew as much in percentage terms between 1950 and 1970 as they did between 500 and 1500. And given the much higher base at the start of the 1950s, the absolute increase in the volume of goods and services produced was enormously greater. This kind of growth was not a feature of Soviet Russia. According to G North, quote, Naum Jansi, in his book, Soviet Industrialization, 1928-1952-1961, reveals how Stalin used growth figures as propaganda devices, setting goals for the five-year plans, themselves propaganda devices more than planning tools, so high that no economic system could have produced the anticipated results. It was growth for the sake of growth. The actual per capita output of consumer goods did not significantly increase until the mid 1950s. Only in 1952 did wage rates reach the level that Tsarist Russia had attained in 1913. End quote. The Soviet economy, dominated by political control and lacking freedom of any kind, except perhaps on the black markets, was incapable of producing the kind of economic growth and social amelioration that has characterized the economies of Protestant Europe. The two systems of economic organisation are radically different in spirit and produce an enormous disparity in general standards of living. Unfortunately, under the aegis of the European Union, the economies of Western Europe are now moving closer to the spirit that characterised the socialist economies of the Soviet Union. And this is happening at the very time when socialism has been proved incapable not only of delivering economic growth, on the magnitude experienced under capitalism in the west but of even maintaining general standards of living much lower than those of contemporary western nations only a return to the christian spirit of capitalism that is the subordination of the acquisitive impulse the profit motive to rational economic principles based on the christian ethic will save the nations of the west from the irrational economics of socialist ideology and the inevitable economic decline that is the lot of nations that are seduced by the siren songs of a fairer society and greater wealth for all that socialism offers.